Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hey, Karen. How's it going? Great, Anne. How are you? Good, good. So um, we have a lot to talk about today. It looks like we have a number of studies to cover. Uh, I'm just going to dive right in to what I have. Uh, So Uh, You know, I really, one of the things that fascinates me about more recent research is how we are seeing the effect of lactating on that, on mothers, particularly because these studies are done on mothers mainly, on the health of mothers in their decades beyond menopause. I just, I just think we need to pay more attention to this and understand that lactating, that lactation is just part of the normal physiology that optimizes our health and kind of um, re-sort of fixes, I guess, the cardiovascular hits that women take when they're pregnant, because it is not necessarily a great thing to be pregnant because you have all this, you have higher cholesterol, you have other, you have insulin resistance, more visceral fat, et cetera, and we got to fix that in order to not um, put people at risk, right, as they get older. Yep. This is a study that I thought was interesting, somewhat related to this, to this whole metabolic programming issue. Uh, The study is called Association Between Breastfeeding and Reduced Distal Sensory Polyneuropathy in Postmenopausal Women Aged 40 to 70, Analysis of Data from the 1994 to 2004 National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. It has a number of authors, with the first one being Lee, And this was just published in January, uh, Breastfeeding Medicine Journal. So um, the authors state in the background that distal sensory polyneuropathy, which I'm just going to call DSP because it's a lot of words, um, is actually one of the most common forms of peripheral neuropathy, affecting about 12% of non-diabetic adults over 40. And then the rate increases with age. So when we just talk to those who are not familiar with what we mean by peripheral neuropathy, um, I'm referring to uh, the fine nerves that are in the hands and feet, and primarily this is going to be in the feet in kind of a stocking, just like a like a sock distribution from the toes, you know, going up to the ankles. And people usually experience a sense of like numbness, tingling, prickly sensation, not so much extreme pain. Most people who have this are people who have diabetes um, or prediabetes. Um, but there are um, people who um, who have, you know, this is very common, and it's sort of thought that it's that it may not even be prediabetes, but just a slight insulin, just a slight insulin resistance, slight glucose intolerance, so that the blood sugars are just a little bit higher than normal. Something that we as family doctors see as being, yeah, blood sugars are okay, blood sugars are 102 rather than 100 fasting. Okay, they're not diabetic. We're not going to worry about it. But in fact. Having that low grade amount of slightly, you know, slightly elevated blood sugar is not so great um, for nerves. 
Well, the and cutoff so, um, is... It's also thought that postmenopausal women uh, are at higher risk for this than men, partially related to estrogen deficiency. Um, as I mentioned about the blood sugars, having an unhealthy lifestyle and a lower socioeconomic status are risk factors. And again, just related to difference in diet, exercise, um, et cetera. Um, so, um, so there's robust evidence that breastfeeding decreases the risk of insulin resistance, and we have lots of research on that, um, in addition to reducing the risk of diabetes, glucose intolerance, and visceral fat over time. Uh, so we see the, these effects in studies looking at like patient pa uh, subjects who are in the women's health study, the nurses study, and these are people who were recruited in the 1980s, and they're still being studied, studied into their many later decades of life. Um, so the authors were interested in seeing whether there's an association between breastfeeding history and uh, distal sensory polyneuropathy among postmenopausal women between the ages of 40 and 70. So they used data from 1999 to, 20, to 2004 uh, that they harvested from the N. Haynes uh, survey, which is the National Health and Nutritional Exam Survey here in the United States. Um, they excluded postmenopausal post women who have known history of stroke, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, thyroid disease, liver disease, and renal disease, because all of those diseases can play a role in sensory neuropathy. And then they looked at various covariants, right? So you want to make sure that we're comparing apples to apples. And so we know that there are other factors that can play a role in neuropathy, um, such as alcohol use, tobacco use, high blood pressure, um, body mass index, the number of pregnancies, the use of hormones for birth control or for estrogen replacement therapy. They looked at race, education, income, and whether these people had insurance so that they could go to the doctor and discover, you know, that they need um, health, if they, if, you know, that they could obtain healthcare basically. And then they defined breastfeeding as ever breastfed because that's the data that they could get from the survey. So they found 386 participants who met the inclusion criteria and 51 out of those 386 people were diagnosed with uh, sensory um, peripheral neuropathy. So um, what they found is that um, a, they basically summarized that a postmenopausal woman aged 40 to 70 years who breastfed any of her children experienced a 71% reduction in the odds of having distal sensory um, polyneuropathy compared with those without any breastfeeding history after they adjusted for age, income, race, BMI, and time since menopause. But um, what they, when they actually looked, when they dug deeper, they actually found that the protective effect of breastfeeding really was only among people who were obese. So people who were, um, who had normal BMI, uh, they, I think the normal BMI, having a normal BMI and not having insulin resistance protects them enough from uh, this disease that um, any breastfeeding doesn't really modify it. So this is just one more downstream effect of breastfeeding on insulin resistance, visceral fat, and pancreatic health in the long run. So then they brought up a couple other things that I thought were interesting. Uh, one is that uh, they said that breastfeeding actually, because of the hormonal changes during breastfeeding, can have um, a, pro a protective um, effect on peripheral nerve aging. 
by um, by the fact that there's that we're slowing the ovulation and reproductive aging. Um, they also state that elevated prolactin and oxytocin may actually be neuroprotective of tiny nerves, which I never knew. Um, so they have some geeky stuff in the article, uh, and they say that oxytocin has been shown to prevent ischemia-induced inflammation by regulating tumor necrosis factors, oxidative stress, and peripheral nerves. So it must modulate inflammation that can be associated with oxidative stresses. And it also decreases the production of norepinephrine, uh, which can aggravate neuritis. And then I guess prolactin itself has been found in animal studies to be neuroprotective as well. So essentially breastfeeding not only reverses or protects from metabolic disorders that are damaging to nerves, but it's also uh, it also uh, provides those hormonal effects of being anti-inflammatory during the premenopausal phase. So that's actually like, you know, it's one more, like I always say, one more feather in the cap of breastfeeding. Um, but I always love when they actually find these associations and then can have that biologic plausibility to really explain it both um, from other studies that we, you know, know, and then also just understanding how oxytocin and prolactin can have that direct effect. It's just amazing. That was really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, there was an article that was published recently that was sort of a little bit of a devil's advocate regarding all of this data that we have been finding about the association between breastfeeding, um, maternal metabolism, cholesterol, high blood pressure, stroke, heart attack, like all the things, right? Visceral fat saying that people have a harder time breastfeeding if they you know, if they have those things to be good enough. So someone who has associational diabetes, plastic variant syndrome, morbid obesity is going to have a harder time breastfeeding. So we're basically selecting out for those who are at lower risk anyway. But I don't, I don't really, I don't agree with that because otherwise we wouldn't see necessarily a dose response if that was the case, right? Because when we look at some of the studies, like from the women's health, well, I'm sorry, from the nurses study, looking at the decreased risk of type two diabetes, or just looking at like hemoglobin A1Cs and C peptides, it's, it's a dose response relationship. And I wouldn't expect to see that if it was like an all or nothing thing. So yeah. Anyway. Oh. Yay. Science. <laughs> Yay. Science. I still, I'm, I'm still going to just kind of, uh, I'm still going to really believe in this and not think that this is all totally confounded. So I mean, there are so many things that play into it. I mean, my like drum that I'm always beating is like the so much is put into we need to, you know, convince people to breastfeed, like strengthen their intention. And then you look at all of the medical things that interfere with people breastfeeding you know, when pediatricians tell people, oh, your baby should sleep through the night, don't wake a sleeping baby that results in weaning. And so, you know, there are just a zillion different touch points that impact what, you know, that duration. It isn't, it isn't just, does this person have metabolic syndrome? Right. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. So that was super fascinating. It made my inner geek very happy. Um, I'm going to share this uh, article with you that 
also made me very happy. And it is, um, it was published just now this January, 2023 in breastfeeding medicine. It's called transfer of injected triamcinolone into human milk of a lactating patient suffering from idiopathic granulomatous mastitis by Rosen Carroll, Dada, Palmiter, Starks, and Hale. And as background, idiopathic granulomatous mastitis, or IgM, is a chronic inflammatory condition of the mammary gland that presents as a painful mass and must be distinguished from infectious mastitis and breast cancer. When it is diagnosed during lactation, it can result in significant distress and early weaning. Injection of triamcinolone has been used as a successful treatment method, but safety in breastfeeding infants has not been established. And triamcinolone is a glucose, triamcinolone is a glucoder, I cannot say that word. Glucocorticoid. Thank you. Triamcinolone is a glucocorticoid with anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressant activity used to treat various disorders topically, orally, and in injected form. It has a low molecular weight and high oral bioavailability. And for breastfeeding purposes, a relatively long half-life of 18 to 36 hours because of the possible risk of growth restriction and suppression of endogenous corticosteroid production, it has been proposed that weaning from breastfeeding is required um, from the injected side when this is used as a treatment for IgM. These authors present a case that a lactating patient who received a direct injection of triamcinolone of 40 milligrams in her breast to treat IgM after failure of oral um, steroids And in this case, breast milk samples were expressed by the patient um, immediately after one hour, four and 24 hours after the procedure, and then daily for one week. All the samples were analyzed using liquid chromatography mass spectrometry, and the patient was supported um, by breastfeeding and lactation medicine clinic. After injection of triamcinolone into the mass, breast milk samples were found to contain no triamcinolone at any time point. A temporary but significant decrease in milk production was noted after injection on that side. And with support, the patient rebuilt milk production and continued to breastfeed from both breasts. And um, the case report has a a bunch of other really fascinating details. I think for anybody who is interested in this particular um, disease, it is definitely worth reading. And for people who are not familiar with it, it is really important to be able to recognize it um, when you're practicing breastfeeding medicine. I just wanted to highlight a couple of other little points. The patient um, in the case was a 43-year-old Gravita 2, Para 2, Caucasian female who delivered via C-section for preeclampsia with severe features at 31 weeks and six days gestation. Um, She had a history of uncomplicated breastfeeding with her first child for 18 months, but after a preterm birth was pump dependent and struggled with low milk production. And she was referred to the inpatient breastfeeding and lactation medicine service Um, at University of Rochester, a high-risk interprofessional service supporting lactating families, both inpatient and outpatient. 
And I just, you know, I think that is so fantastic that they have this there. Um, this patient was noted to have a mass four weeks after delivery um, with some pump trauma and some inversion of one nipple. Initially, the mass was treated as a clogged duct. And um, the patient was um, given different um, flange sizes for their pump, taught lymphatic drainage, treated with ice, ibuprofen, um, and sunflower lecithin, and observed for mastitis. The uh, About four days later, the mass was smaller and the nipples had improved. Milk production was increasing, but the um, persistence of the mass led to imaging and then um, the milk culture grew crinibacterium, which is a very common association with IgM. Um, notably, the culture was negative for acid fast bacteria, which also we need to be concerned about the possibility of um, tuberculosis in cases similar to this. This patient went on to have a core needle biopsy that showed um, fibroglandular breast tissue with lactation change and acute chronic and granulomatous inflation with numerous multinucleated giant cells and no evidence of malignancy. She was treated with oral um, steroids, but this did not lead to satisfactory results. And so eventually the decision was made to use um, steroid injections into the breast. And the patient was treated with one milliliter of triamcinolone 40 milligrams per ml, along with three milliliters of 2% lidocaine. And the current recommendation is to stop providing milk from the injected breast after injection. However, due to um, the paucity of evidence and the unlikely mechanism of distribution into breast milk um, and the possibility for repeat injections, the um, treatment team decided to collect and measure the milk triamcinolone as well as um, expressing the rest of the milk from that time period and storing it. I often like to say we don't need to pump and dump. We can pump and freeze when we're trying to figure things out. And this team went all out to figure it out. They partnered with the um, Infant Risk Center, which is associated with Texas Tech University. And um, they tested these samples, which did not show any triamcinolone. Um, as I, I mentioned earlier, there was a dip in supply that recovered with support at around two weeks. Um, I did ask, um, Dr. Rosen Carroll, if they tested the milk as well for the lidocaine mm -hmm. and the answer was no, because, you know, we know a lot about medications and milk when they are taken orally, but less about when they're injected directly into the breast. Although I will say lidocaine has a much, much shorter half-life than right. triamcinolone. And so I would assume if you didn't find any of the triamcinolone, um, the risk of lidocaine is um, low, but I would have liked to have seen that as well. It would have been nice to know. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't see that as a contraindication. Like if they were just injecting lidocaine, I wouldn't worry about that. Yeah. And I think, you know, this goes to the author's discussion where they point out that collaborative work with, um, pharmacological researchers adds important data to treatment recommendations for lactating patients. 
Um, in this case, no triamcinolone was found in the milk. And though it is possible that different injection methods, patient physiologies, breast pathologies could limit the generalization of this finding, it's reassuring um, for patients with this condition. And, you know, I think there are some photos in this case. I have seen quite a few patients with this disease. Some have very extensive disease and may end up being injected with somewhat of a higher dose. And depending on whether or not there is a fistula or, you know, how much milk is being expressed, it certainly could change the amount of um, medication that is getting into the ductal system versus the stroma. But I'm really glad that they took the extra effort to write up this case because I think there is a real need for more information for these patients that truly are suffering. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think this that kind of this kind of work is so important. And it's such a drag if someone has IgM on one side and you're injecting and then to say, oh, you can't use the milk. I mean, oh, it's such, you know, they go through so much already and then you have to tell them that. And um, so then the question is, like you said, you know, there's so much variability between people in terms of like, you know, I, I, I guess I wouldn't say there's so much variability that we can't trust um, you know, a study of like, you know, 15, 20 people in terms of transmission of a drug um, that we can't apply that to everyone. I, I don't agree. I mean, I think, you know, we can get these principles, but with injection, like you said, it's a little bit different in terms of where that medication is going to go, how quickly it's absorbed, things like that. Um, and so it would be nice to have more work done on that. And, um, and maybe it is still wise to have them pump and save but not tell them to pump and dump and tell them, you know, it's unlikely to be in there. So we could just, you know, parse it out with different feedings. Um, Yeah. I tell them that as well. I say, you know, if you have this high risk milk that is who knows, 90 milliliters, we might divide it up into, you know, six different aliquots and mix it with other milk and, and dilute. And, you know, it depends on the medication, right? This isn't chemotherapy. This is a medication that I would give directly to a baby of any age if they had an indication for it. Um, And then the last thing I wanted to highlight about this paper is that the authors added in their discussion that um, key features that led to a successful outcome in this case included very frequent communication with this breastfeeding and lactation medicine team in which the provider served as the primary care for this patient's illness course, helping with imaging appointments, referrals, coordination of care between multiple subspecialists, prescribing the injectable steroid, testing the milk, and um, helping the patients to reach her goals of preserving breastfeeding, which she did at six-month follow-up. And I find that that is the case so often. I was um, talking to um, one of my coworkers recently, and I said that it's like there's this OB to breast surgery pipeline where people who have pain or certain complaints go looking for help and people don't know what to do. So then they send them to somebody else who doesn't know what to do. And I was going to say to you, like, you know, you did, you've done such great work with the primary care nurse breastfeeding champion. We need to work on the um, breast surgery nurse champion. We're actually going to partner with our breast surgery clinics and PEs in the coming months to um, 
provide them some additional education on how to deal with the breast, the lactation related patients they receive that aren't really what they do, but that's where people go. Cause the sign says breast health center. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's true of our center too. And in fact, uh, Katrina Mitchell is going to do a two-part um, half-day session each, uh, just starting this week, actually. Um, so this recording will happen after she did the course, and the course will be recorded and available at the annual site. But it's really very much designed specifically for people who are like nurse practitioners or other physicians who work in breast centers. Like we have an internal medicine doctor working in our breast center along with, the nurse, with some nurse practitioners. And just really honing in on those very surgical issues, breast cancer, IgM, abscesses, the things that they're dealing with all the time. And, um, and I think specifically for IgM, this is something that, breast, that really is something where breastfeeding medicine should be the, um, the hub uh, for, um, for managing these people. And in fact, I had a patient who had IgM with her first baby and uh, now she just had her second baby and she made an appointment with me. She said, my, IG, my IgM didn't come back during pregnancy or lactation, but I'm just seeing you today because you need to help me coordinate this because last time it was terrible. Like she felt like no. Oh, so she has already weaned. No, she's nursing her second baby. She oh, okay. First baby. She had it with her first baby and it was such a terrible experience for her. She came to me without IgM. Prophylactic. Yeah, preventative. Like, I've got you lined up. You're going to advocate for me. I need this badly because it was a terrible situation. Um, And that's so, and so not only are these people, they're generally people who may not speak the language. They tend to be in certain ethnic groups, ethnic, racial group, racial ethnic groups um, who tend to be, who tend to, you know, sort of be at risk for not obtaining the same care, you know, they're at risk for that health inequity. And then you add that, this to that. And she also said to me, and I haven't had other patients tell me this, that it was the most painful thing she ever went through. IgM is so painful. Oh yeah. And so it can be very disfiguring also. I think some of the patients have some real um, psychological stress from, you know, it's a already an intimate part of the body that's being affected. And I know I'll never forget this one patient. Just she's so, she was in, she had weaned several years before when I met her, but she really wanted to get pregnant and she was delaying because she was just was like, I don't know how I could go through that while I'm dealing with this. Um, So I think, yeah, there's a definitely, a lot of work, a lot of systems work to do to support these patients. A disease that does not, does not, does not fare well necessarily in health systems. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking about that. And I'm really excited. I was so excited to see that she had done that work. I just want to mention one other, one other thing too, and that is that we have so much more work that we need to do in being able to measure medications in breast milk, but there are so few places that do that. And somehow that needs to change. We need to have more centers, more ability to measure, to easily measure medications in breast milk uh, to really, you know, to, to further lactation uh, pharmacology. That's interesting. It makes me think of the, um, is it PCORI, the patient-centered um, research work that um, is starting right now. And 
I wonder if patients mentioned that amongst their questions. I, I think, you know, part of me wanted to fill out that survey like 18 times and just yes. <laughs> like try to weight it towards mine. But I was like, okay, it's patient centered. I'll leave it alone. Right. right exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, I just have this really short abstract that actually was not peer reviewed. It was in a set of, it was just like a meeting abstract. Um, that I'm not sure which meeting it was, but it ended up in the Lancet under a bunch of abstracts. So obviously they covered abstracts for a certain meeting. Um, so this is entitled Infant Feeding Method and a Special Educational Need in Scottish School Children, a National Retrospective Cohort Study with the first uh, author being Adams. And this was just published in November of 2022. So although uh, special educational needs are increasingly recorded among school school age children. Infant breastfeeding has been associated with reduced incidence of childhood physical and mental health problems. So this study actually investigated relationships between infant feeding methods and the risk of a special educational needs. So what they did is they actually took uh, because it's you know national health national healthcare. Um, and the fact that they have great databases, they were actually able to look at healthcare databases and merge it with educational databases to sort of identify this relationship between infant feeding and special educational needs. So this was a retrospective population cohort of school children in Scotland where they evaluated, again, the health and educational databases of singleton children born in Scotland from 2004 through, uh, I think it was 2019. Um, and they only had uh, breastfeeding data between six and eight weeks of life. So they actually just identified if they were breastfeeding or not breastfeeding or mixed feeding between six and eight weeks. And, um, and children who attended what's called the local authority mainstream, which is probably just public school or special schools. Um, and uh, so they investigated associations between infant feeding method at six to eight weeks and any cause and cause specific um, special educational needs adjusting for socio-demographic information, such as the child's age, sex, deprivation, quintile, and ethnicity, and then looked at maternal issues such as age, smoking, parity, a five-minute APGAR score, estimated gestation, sex gestation-specific birth weight percentile, marital status, and mode of delivery factors. So they actually, you know, because it's a large um, national cohort, they identified um, 191,000 or like 192,000 children who met the inclusion criteria. And among those, 66% were formula-fed, 48% percent were uh, exclusively breastfed and 16 percent no I'm sorry tw yeah 25 percent were exclusively breastfed and 8.5 percent were mixed fed so the majority more than 50 percent were formula fed and um, they found that in in that group of 191,000 children um, 12 percent actually required some sort of special educational um, special education needs so that's, you know, that's that's interesting that it is so high. Um, compared with formula feeding, mixed feeding and exclusive breastfeeding were associated with a 10% to 
decreased risk of any cause of special educational needs um, with specifically 25% decreased risk of uh, needs related to learning disabilities, 15% decreased risk um, associated with um, uh, learning difficulties. So the first was learning disability and, and reduced risk of learning difficulties. And then when they compared, compared with formula feeding, exclusively breastfed children had 19% lower risk of communication problems, 23% lower risk of socio-emotional behavioral difficulties, 11% decreased risk of sensory impairments, 22% decreased risk of physical motor disabilities, and 26% decreased risk of physical health conditions. So really this vast difference in the special educational needs of those who are breastfed and there were no significant associations for mixed fed children. So there were so, and they found that the type of feeding method was not significantly associated with mental health conditions or with autism. And uh, so we you know one limitation is that the only, uh, only the six to eight week um, feeding status uh, was available, uh, which act actually precluded differentiation between never breastfed infants and those who stopped breastfeeding before six weeks. So in other words, is some degree of breastfeeding the first six weeks, um, does that matter? Also uh, though, it was more than 50% were just formula fed by six to eight weeks in this large national cohort, yes. which is pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah, by six, I mean, yeah, that's huge. I mean, well, yeah. Yeah, I don't really know much about breastfeeding in Scotland. I, you know, if it's anything like Ireland, it's, you know, it's, it's a very, you know, low breastfeeding rate. Um, the authors uh, stated that uh, the findings provide further support of potential benefits of breastfeeding for child health, lending weight to the need to support mothers to breastfeed, and resources have increased recently, but they should remain a national priority. So I love that when, you know, studies like this are informing the government saying, you need to put more money into this because this can make a difference for the health of children. But, you know, whenever I see studies like this, I'm always thinking about the naysayers and the devil's advocates who may say, well, you know, maybe children who have special needs um, are not as effective with breastfeeding. Maybe they have more lash problems, feeding issues. But I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, I've seen a lot of kids over the years who have really significant disabilities who breastfed fine. Like they didn't have any oral motor issues. So, and did, sorry, did they control for socioeconomic they did. status? Okay. Cause that's the other thing that, you know, they might say, you know, just the likelihood to pursue breastfeeding. Right. They I did. mean, I think that's really, that's a pretty stark difference. I don't, I, you sounded like you were surprised when you said, you know, there was 12% need for special education. I actually don't think that's surprising at all. I mean, if you just think about the the IQ bell curve and then other types of disabilities, um, yeah, you're a right. lot of kids who need special education in yeah. our school district. It's probably closer to twenty five percent that qualify for either an individual education plan or a five hundred four, which are different types of protections in the U.S. school system for a special education. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it is actually that's low because when I, when I remember talking to 
um, one of our social workers many years ago in our public school system here in Madison. And she mentioned that for sixth grade, somewhere like around 50% uh, could qualify. Um, and it was a school that had a fair number of children coming from lower socioeconomic groups, but uh, communities. Um, but yeah, it can be, yeah, really, it can be quite high. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so anyway, it's uh, something that we, we need to look further into for sure. And when you think about, you know, all the premature kids who don't have access to human milk, um, we know clearly that they have a major strike against them as they move through life. Oh yeah, next time I'm going to talk to you about a NICU study. Yes, oh, perfect. Love it. Um, okay, so I have one other study that I'm going to talk about during this podcast. And this is this is going to knock your socks off. It's super interesting. Uh, so this, this uh, study is entitled Breastfeeding Increases the Expression of TLR4, TNF-alpha, CCL2, and CCL3 in the prepuce, prepuce, I don't even know how to pronounce that, tissue, the foreskin, it's, it's called foreskin. <laughs> <laughs> and this was actually done in uh, Iran, and the first author is um, Behar, and it's in the Journal of Archives of Medical Research, published in November of 2022. Um, so this um, is actually a really interesting study uh, that looked at the innate immune activation needed for tissue repair between infants who are breastfed and those who are formula fed. So I just rattled off a whole bunch of factors, which most people listening probably have no idea what I'm talking about. So I'm going to explain that. Um, so we have these innate immune modulators in our bodies called toll-like receptors. So where there's tissue damage, this, the, the, the cells that are dying from the damage, they spew out these chemicals or like SOS messages, like help, help, come repair me, right? Because how else does our body know to go fix our laceration or fix our bruise or whatever? So, um, so, we, so these damaged cells send out these messages. And um, uh, so they actually activate what are called, what are called toll-like receptors. And um, so activation of these receptors will trigger a cascade of immune responses, including the production of cytokines. Um, and that's what I was talking about with these different acronyms I was mentioning. Um, so some of the cytokines are tumor necrosis factor, which is the TNF-alpha, transforming growth factor beta, and then um, molecules that are called chemokines, uh, known as CC ligand 2 and CC ligand 3. So all of these cytokines as a group play a role in tissue repair and what's called angiogenesis, which helps our bodies make, you know, more blood vessels so we can bring, you know, you need the bridge to get the people over to where, just like Sandoval Island that got destroyed by the hurricane, which is very sad. You need bridges to get the, to get all the stuff there in order to rebuild and the bridge was destroyed. That's what happens in tissue damage as well, the bridges are destroyed, so you need to create more bridges, which are the small blood vessels, and that's angiogenesis. So, you know, one of the first things that many infants undergo um, in this world, depending on where they live, is circumcision. And so circumcision requires tissue repair. So the question is whether breastfeeding affects the expression of genes that may alter the production of these molecules that play a role in wound healing. In other words, does breastfeeding have an effect on the toll-like receptors and how they 
um, how they respond to tissue damage and whether or not they're able to, you know, in, enable that production of the of these different cytokines that are going to fix the wound. So, so these researchers were very um, innovative and creative. And so they actually thought, well, let's take a bunch of foreskins and take a look at this. So they had 90 foreskin samples from 90 different infants, 45 of whom were exclusively breastfed and 45 who were not breastfed. Um, the gestational ages of these infants were somewhere between 37 and 42 weeks, and the infants were considered healthy. They didn't actually say when the circumcisions occurred, but I did a Google search to find out when circumcision is commonly done in Iran, and they said somewhere between day two to seven. It probably depends on, um, you know, the communities or whatever. So I'll spare you the graphic details of all the things they did to this tissue, because partly because I don't understand it, <laughs> and partly because, you know, who needs to imagine it? But they did grind up the foreskins, and then they measured the cytokines looking for differences in amounts uh, based on infant feeding. And what would you guess, since it is the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast? I would say that the breastfed babies had better um, cytokine mix. Right. Oh my gosh, you are so right. <laughs> I would also say I'm glad that I don't work in a basic science lab where I have to grind up foreskins. Right, exactly. Yeah, that sounds like a nasty job. Um, it's probably the graduate students who had to do that. <laughs> of course. Or graduate students. Yes. So um, what they did is they actually looked at um, these different factors. So they looked at the tumor necrosis factor alpha, the transforming growth factor beta, and the and the uh, chemokines called CCL2 and CCL3. And there was a very major difference, significant difference in all these factors, except for the transforming growth factor beta. They, there was, it was still higher. So all of them were higher in the breastfed babies versus the formula fed babies, but it just didn't reach clinical, it didn't reach like statistical significance just for the one factor, uh, the growth factor. And then they looked at the toll-like receptor activity. So, you know, so the immune receptor that's responsible for triggering the outpouring of these, of these uh, molecules. Um, and so what they did is they looked at the mRNA uh, levels of toll-like receptor 4, and they found that those that the toll-like receptor 4, the, the RNA level, was actually lower in the babies who were not breastfed. Um, and since the toll receptor is responsible for inducing production of these cytokines and chemokines, it might there be that there's actually down-regulation of these receptors in non-breastfeeding babies, or in other words, breastfeeding, you know, really um, is important to uh, to push the expression of these toll-like receptors to activate, uh, you know, the response to any injury, which maybe that's why we see a difference. Uh, maybe this partially plays a role in why we see a difference with something like necrotizing enterocolitis, for example, or infants who are really sick early on who have tissue damage from like RSV, that we can mount, that infants who are breastfeeding can mount that immune response uh, to a greater degree than uh, babies who are not. And, and it's also, you know, I think, I feel like this is great. Research is, is important and a good first step. But then the question is, is more better? Um, is there, are there other more fancy ways of looking at like the effectiveness of these agents? I mean, you know, what, what actually do we look at to prove that it's, that there's, that there's, you know, this improved wound healing, obviously you'd want to see like, okay, who's, who heals their circumcision faster, right? 
like, you know, we're following these circumcisions over time, right? And especially as breastfeeding medicine specialists, like I'm seeing these babies so much more often in, in the first two weeks than someone who sees them on day three in the office and says, okay, see you at two weeks. And I'm saying, no, 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 I'm going to see you on day five and then day seven and then making sure you're gaining. And then I'm still looking at the diaper and say, let's take a look at that circumcision. Um, and so, you know, we don't really, no one's really looking at timing of healing. Like when does that granulation tissue under the, under the penis, like go away? Uh, that's kind of the final little area. I mean, that is a really interesting question. When I see parents in the hospital and, you know, they're asking me about putting Vaseline on and how long do I need to do this for? I, you know, I often say it's amazing how fast it heals. Like really it epithelializes so, so quickly, but I've never thought about, or let alone, you know, considered studying how long exactly does it take? What's the average? Are these babies, you know, depending on their feeding method, healing faster than the others. It's an interesting question. And then it also depends on the procedure, right? Because sometimes they have bigger wounds than others. And so it would be a little tricky to follow healing just by, you know, looking at wound, you know, when the wound closes, right? Sure. You would have to, you know, everybody would have to be their own control. And then how do you compare others depending on how many adhesions had to be separated? And yeah. And let's face it, some people just do a much nicer job than other surgeons in this department. Although I always tell the parents they'll love it no matter what, when it's all done. <laughs> such a good, you're such a great pediatrician. <laughs> well, that was all I have. So I thought we, I think we learned a fair amount today. So. Yeah, this was a super awesome uh, mix of super geeky stuff. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm going to try to get these references up on our Facebook page. We haven't been doing that just because we're busy, um, but I'm going to try now. I'm going to use a, a fancy new method of trying to get these articles um, into the into the Facebook page. So, all right. Talk to Excellent. You later. Bye. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.